0: Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with another episode of The Yacking Show. This is the show that aims to bring you a wider range of actionable business ideas and tips than you'll find practically anywhere else in one place on the internet. And we do that by bringing you interesting guests, and today's guest is no exception. But first, let's introduce co-host Kathleen Beauvais from Waterloo, Ontario. Hi, Kathleen. Take it away.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Peter, and thank you all so very much for tuning in today. We are so honoured and privileged to have Dr. Kristen Eccleston with us today, and and I can't wait to delve into this topic, but she is an award-winning education consultant, keynote speaker. She's a published author and a corporate mental uh, um, corporate mental health thought leader. And today she'll be talking to us about neurodiversity in the workplace. Kristen, welcome. How are you today? You. I'm doing great. And thank you for such a lovely and warm welcome. <laughs> I truly appreciate that. You have an exceptional background. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what led you to start your own consultancy?
2: That is a a really good question. And it's a long story, but so I'll try not to go too long winded with it. But I I started as a special education teacher um, many years ago, I loved being a special education teacher. Um, After years of working with different populations of students, I ended up getting just kind of the universal lining and having an opportunity to create a new special education program in the district I taught in. And I was really focused on mental health at the time. And this was about eight years ago. So before the pandemic, before we knew there was this huge crisis on our hands, I kind of felt like something was bubbling. And I had a very supportive uh, administrative staff behind me. And I created a program specifically for students with with mental health needs. And, And it was very successful. I had amazing staff who worked with me. Um, I could not have done it without them. And so I decided I was going to go back and get my doctorate because I really wanted to have a better understanding of why there were so many students with mental health needs, what was happening that we were missing so many students with mental health needs until it got to a critical point of them either not wanting to come to school anymore, hospitalizations. And it just so happened that during that period of time that I was getting my doctorate, I like to call it like anything that could go wrong did go wrong type of situation. <laughs> um, I My mother got throat cancer at the time. I fell down a flight oh, of stairs. I was in a boot. Um, unfortunately, one of my teachers had an affair with a student. Um, we had, <laughs> yeah, we had a student who went full-blown schizophrenia and had access to firearms and was threatening to her. It was like all all the different things. And, and so I had never up until that point, had any intention of ever leaving teaching. I mean, I, I very much loved teaching. And I kind of felt like the universe was screaming at me, hey, it's time to make it. You got to make a change. Yeah. <laughs> and If you're not going to make this change, we're just going to keep throwing things at you until you finally realize it, it's time to to make a change. So it, it ended up kind of correlating with the same time of me finishing my doctorate. And I felt, you know, I really am passionate about students. I'm passionate about neurodiversity. I'm passionate about mental health. My research specifically was on mental health in the education setting. Maybe it's time for me to come out and start my own business, focusing on how I can help in that space in a broader setting. Mm -hmm. More than just this one school or this one school district, how can I do something bigger? And so that's kind of what led me to starting my own. My own business—it was never anything I had planned, intended, or, or I think at the time wanted to do. It was kind of just how life's journey took me along for the ride and said, "Hey, this is what you're going to be doing."
1: Wow!
2: Kudos to you. What an inspiration!
0: Oh, yeah, for sure, and and certainly quite a few uh, experiences altogether pointing you in that direction. That it was uh, literally one
2: thing after another. It was—I'd uh, wake up and be like, "What what experience am I going to have today?" Type of thing.
0: That's wow. right. Wow. So, Kristen, can you, for our audience, can you explain neuro neurodiversity and why is it important to understand this in the workplace?
2: Absolutely. So, I think neurodiversity is becoming one of those terms that we're hearing all the time, but we're not necessarily sure what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so neurodiversity is is an all-encompassing term for individuals who have ADHD, uh, autism, sensory processing oh, okay. disorder, auditory process disorder, dyslexia, dyscalculia, all of those things are considered being neurodiverse. So your brain just sees Mm -hmm. the world, takes in the world, processes it differently. So it's just an all-encompassing term. But one of the reasons why it's so important in the workplace is we now know that there are a higher rate of individuals being diagnosed Mm -hmm. um, with autism with ADHD. So many adults are even starting to realize that they didn't get diagnosed when they were younger, especially females. I would say females in the 30 to 40 range are going, hey, I I have ADHD. Now my whole life makes more sense. Nobody ever caught it when I was Mm -hmm. younger, because even when I was in school in the 80s and the 90s, ADHD was kind of a new thing it was usually reserved for hyperactive little boys maybe who people thought Mm -hmm, their parenting mm -hmm. wasn't quite under control there but we now know that a lot of little girls were like your daydreamers or the ones who were easily distracted or asked a lot of different questions and 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 we've realized about 70 percent of the population probably is more neurodiverse than we ever realized and it's important in the workplace because we don't necessarily, just like an education, account for people's brain being a little bit different, mm-hmm. seeing the world a little bit differently. And I think we've, we've all heard of these terminologies that have been coming up recently about quiet quitting or acting your wage or, you know, not being satisfied at work. And I think a lot of that has to do with we now have a, an understanding better about how our brain works, but the corporate setting, just like the education setting, hasn't really changed. Hasn't really um, Mm -hmm. updated what I like to call operating procedures at all to really encompass how these individuals work. And you have so many, I'll say they're cons. There's cons to having ADHD or autism. You know, maybe your time management isn't always the best. You maybe walk in a little bit late or maybe you're a little disorganized, but we don't put enough emphasis on some of the really positive things too. People who are ADHD are usually highly creative, highly intelligent, uh, work right under pressure, um, are definitely people you want to have in a crisis situation. And instead of focusing mm-hmm. on those things, we tend to put the emphasis on the negative. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of high job turnover, people not being satisfied at work, um, this whole concept of acting your wage. Um, I also think people don't realize when you hire someone and within six months, if they leave, you didn't really get your money's worth out of that person. And, and companies can lose up to a million, I think it's $1.5 million within a three-year time span if you're constantly having to replace the same staff mm-hmm. over yeah. and over again. And so if you can start incorporating ways to be what I'd like to call a little bit more neurodiverse friendly and trying to understand how that brain works, what their needs are, then you're going to have individuals who feel more engaged, more empowered, more valued in that workplace and then are more likely to stick around for an extended period of time.
0: Interesting. So, sorry, Kathleen, can I jump in with some another question for Kristen here? So, Kristen, as you can see, I'm, I'm an old guy. I left school in the, uh, the end of the 60s. <laughs> so I started in the corporate world uh, in the 70s and then had my own business for a long time. This was neurodiversity. Uh, all the isms and the acronyms were unheard of then. Right, you you did have who were uh, retarded to use the, but they were very small minority. We had kids who were slow learners and and dyslexia was from if I remember from my school days was just starting to be diagnosed, but most kids coped well in school, relatively well in school, and in the work environment. So that's a background. So from my experience, so my question to you is. Is the problems associated with neurodiversity getting worse or is the nature of work and the pressures of the workplace making these differences more apparent?
2: That's a great question. I think there's actually kind of two things to consider when answering that question. The first being that often people who are neurodiverse also deal with high levels of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And so you can have somebody who is ADHD and I'm ADHD, I always, I'm very clear, I tell people I'm ADHD, I like putting it out there so people can see what ADHD can look like. And oftentimes with that anxiety, you can mask a lot of those ADHD. things. Ah, so there's okay. a good chance that people who may have had that high functioning autism or that ADHD mask a lot of it. And right. anxiety is usually what will mask it. So, you know, we know that people with ADHD have poor time management and will come to work late and you might go, well, you know, Kristen comes to work on time every single day. She can't have ADHD, but it could be anxiety that is making sure that Kristen gets to work every single time. Ah,
0: Okay, okay. But then
2: when Kristen gets home, she's overwhelmed. She's stressed out. It's the stuff that you may have not seen in the corporate setting because the person masked it enough Hot. to get home. And then they were dealing with that mental health factor. And I think that that's another thing too. We're a little bit more aware of mental health. We talk about mental health more, but we used to all kind of suffer in silence before it was something that mm-hmm. you could talk about. Um, it was very, it was stigma. You wouldn't have wanted anybody to know that you were impacted or dealing with anything. So I think there's probably generational trauma that went on for Mm -hmm. many years Mm -hmm. of things that were never addressed and things that never came out to light. And maybe that then came into people's parenting style, how they coped with things, maybe that, you know, alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And that I mean, there's so many things that we could go down rabbit holes on. But I think that's why we saw those generational things happen for periods of time is because people found other ways to cope and mask. So they didn't get associated with the stigma. But I also think in a workplace setting, we definitely, I think over, it, it's hard, I would say the next last 20 to 30 years, that whole rat race, you know, ever since we mm-hmm. kind of established these neighborhoods that you worked, you lived out here, you worked here, so you had to drive in, you had to get up early. It was kind of being on that cognitive wheel. I mean, that's kind of a concept that really came about, I would say, very strongly after World War II. And I think sure. it was just gone and it escalated and to the point where I think the pandemic was kind of one of those things that pumped Mm -hmm. everybody's brakes and all of a sudden we all realized oh my gosh I've been on this hamster wheel and I didn't even realize I was on it until I had an opportunity to step off during that kind of time that we were all in isolation and I think a lot of people now have had a hard time coping with having to get back on the hamster wheel Mm -hmm. now that they realized Mm -hmm. they were on one and that's why we're seeing some Uh, of the ongoing struggles that are happening because we, we kind of wanted the world to go back to normal, but we didn't address the fact that we all kind of had a traumatic experience during that period of time as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Kristen, can you tell us about your tailored
1: learning solutions, particularly in the corporate space that can eliminate confusion,
2: create equity and optimize success? Absolutely. So a lot of that has to do with what we've been talking about right now. I like to come in, I like to work with HR leaders, people who are essentially managing or overseeing different individuals, and I'm offering a new perspective. It's usually a training or a workshop to some degree, and I will tailor it to what the company's needs are. Part of it is coming in, sitting down, what are you struggling with? Is it is it holding on to employees? Is it the mental health of your employees? Like what is it that you specifically want to focus on? Are you see an area of need but you're not exactly sure how to address it? And that's kind of that tailored part. I make sure that the workshop or the training is then tailored to, to that need. But what I'm trying to do is offer new perspectives, offer this idea of understanding what neurodiversity is and how that can look like in your individuals in the workforce, how you can help combat it, the things to get stressed out about, the things not to get stressed out about, the best way to approach individuals who are neurodiverse. And essentially with the goal and the idea that we want your employees to feel really happy and we want them to work for you for a long time so that you are getting the most out of your investment in your employees as a return. So so I just want to jump in here one more time. So
1: what does this mean, particularly for the employer? So it, it, everything that you're saying, is it behavior changes on on. From the employer
2: standpoint, what does that mean? What do they have to do in order to accommodate? Some -hmm. of it is. I mean, one of the biggest things when we're trying to make changes, oftentimes I think we go, I'm not happy with how Kathleen is is working. So Kathleen needs to change. But sometimes the leader or the manager has to go, how am maybe I'm not communicating with the way that Kathleen would best benefit from me having Mm -hmm. conversations there? So sometimes it is kind of that, tough love conversation is it's not always Kathleen. Sometimes I need to reflect on how I'm going about things or how I'm approaching things. Or maybe I need to understand Kathleen's perspective better or I need to understand Peter's perspective better. And that will lead to me having more valuable and engaging conversations with them. It'll allow me to have a little bit more empathy and understanding from where they're coming from. Some of it comes down to, is there a lack of communication or a breakdown in communication or a lack of team building that has occurred because maybe it's just a misunderstanding of who the person is, what their personal biases are, what their life experiences have looked like. And I often find almost in all of the work I do, the biggest puzzle piece that is missing is communication. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it mm-hmm. doesn't
1: nece- like employer may not necessarily know a person is ADHD mm-hmm. or uh, right. So it's more about you're right about communication and how they can best handle a different a different person or personality.
2: Correct. And yeah. and they don't necessarily somebody wouldn't have to come in and say, Hi, I'm Kristen, I have ADHD, I want you to be aware of that. But there's probably things that if you were trained to pick up on kind of like, mm-hmm. we'll call them idiosyncrasies, right. right? You know, this person tends to do this, or I've noticed in meetings, this is how they're responding. or acting. You can usually put two and two together that they probably are neurodiverse. Most neurodiverse adults don't even realize they're neurodiverse, because again, mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't get diagnosed, it wasn't a thing when they were younger. I have met countless adults and usually it's entrepreneurs and, and they go, you know, what, I might be ADHD. And I asked them a couple of questions, I go, welcome to the club. You a hundred percent are, but they didn't know. So maybe just having this idea of awareness can help the employer, the leader, the manager say, you know, there's probably a good chance. So I'm going to at least tailor my approach right. to to this way of doing things, because I at least know that person will probably benefit from this approach or from this ideology.
1: Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to ask you another one, which is going back to what we were discussing before. Uh, and I've been thinking about this while you were answering, Kathleen. That, to my mind, a lot of these new new perceptions and new sensitivities to neurodiversity, using your term, have come about in the last century, and more so in the last half century which is about the exact timetable where there's been this huge shift from rural to urban living, and it ties in with what you were saying about commuting. So would I be on the right track to say that neurodiverse people possibly fit into a rural environment and less stressful work situations better than in the urban environment?
2: You know, I don't think that's an unfair statement to make because I do find that individuals who are neurodiverse do tend to get overwhelmed a lot more. Um, They're the people who definitely like to be alone, kind of need that decompression time, Mm -hmm. you know, feel they like to communicate, they like to be social, but then they definitely feel like they've got to go and recharge the battery a little bit. Um, So I don't think that that's an unfair statement to say, but I also think that uh, people who are neurodiverse Are very complicated um in autism they talk about a spectrum but that spectrum doesn't necessarily always mean you're a lot of autism or a little bit of autism that spectrum just means that your symptoms or your personality traits just vary and it's the same thing with Mm -hmm. individuals who are adhd so some people might really like a city life and that hustle and bustle but they might also be that person who has to go back to that apartment that night And, you know, have a cup of tea and a book and not be going out and about because that's their recovery time. So I think either statement could actually be a very accurate statement, but it really just comes down to that individual and then how much they can essentially withstand that sensory input versus what do they need to kind of recharge from having dealing with all that sensory input. Hmm.
0: Okay. Okay. So you talk about a spectrum. I'm going to throw in a controversial one. My belief is that all of us are on a spectrum and we move along that spectrum uh, depending on stresses, nurture, nature and the whole deal. And that at times we could be easily diagnosed with something and at other times we could be considered normal. So is, is that a fair statement as well?
2: I think, I think it is my, I will even say my father thinks that there's too many diagnoses that happen and that everybody has to have a label now. And, and I, to some degree, I do think that we kind of overly categorize things and we, we do put labels or we try to push things into mm. certain boxes. But I think some of that is just a deeper understanding. There were definitely people who I would say get labeled as having, high-functioning autism, for example.
1: Mm -hmm, sure. And I don't know
2: that I necessarily feel like it's high-functioning autism. It's probably being more of a creative thinker that maybe has some sensory things that are going on. But if you look into research, even medical providers right now, this is all such of a a new terrain or territory. We're Mm -hmm. only just kind of starting to get to the forefront. Research even in women, as far as ADHD goes, is very limited. There's almost no research there. Um, There's tons more that needs to be done. So I think Oftentimes, we are making choices and decisions based on what information we have right now. Mm-hmm. And as we do more research, and as we do more findings, we might start to branch out and say, okay, maybe this wasn't autism, or maybe this wasn't ADHD, maybe sure. this is more of this. So I think we are still working in a field that is kind of newer. It, all the information hasn't been found yet. And I think as we go on, I don't think neurodiversity is going to go anywhere. I think there's definitely always going to be a diagnosis associated with it, but there's definitely sure. a lot more research that needs to be done to understand what is somebody who is neurotypical versus somebody who is neurodiverse. And even within that neurodiverse category, what does that actually mean?
0: Right. Sure. Yeah. So so let's go back to you for the moment. You've, you've got two big highlights in your career. You've achieved, uh, you've been uh, nominated by, I don't know if you say WOM or WOM Lead Magazine, uh, you've got a title there and you participated in season five of The Blocks, which uh, I don't watch satellite TV or, or network TV. So, um, But I understand it's, it's quite a prestigious thing to be in, in there. So tell our audience about that.
2: I was very fortunate um, to be nominated within a women's lead magazine as an entrepreneur essentially to watch in, in the upcoming year. Um, outside of the corporate setting, I also work with families. Uh, of students with mental health needs, and I help mm-hmm. them in getting the right services and supports that they require in the education setting. So I think that's probably a lot of what what that was focused on. And then um, I was on a television show called The Block,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: it's for entrepreneurs. There was sixty different entrepreneurs for the season that wow. I was in, and we all kind of it's a, a format where you go and you kind of learn a lesson. And then you get to compete against each other to essentially see who can implement that that lesson the best. And I was very fortunate. I ended up being the second runner up overall wow. With wow. Different entrepreneurs there. But I, I think it's just I'm very passionate about what I do. And I think that comes through when I'm sure. up and I, I'm talking about my business. Oh, I think we're hearing that.
0: We're hearing that right now. I think yes. and our audience are hearing that too. So I'm not surprised you got that award. Well done. Very good. Yes. Well, thank yes. you.
2: Thank you. So, Kristen, tell us about your typical client. So, I have about, I would say, about three different categories of clients. So, mm-hmm. my first category of client is those families that I mentioned. So, these are families who typically have students who are young, elementary, all the way through high school students. And they are either feeling like they're not getting the support or services that they need at school. Maybe the child is school avoidant and is not going to school and the family is trying to figure out how can we re-engage them in getting back into school. But I am essentially using my special education teacher background and my knowledge of mind, brain, and teaching to support this family in getting the support and service they need for their child to be successful in the education setting. So that involves me going to meetings uh, with the parents and the school system and and ensuring that. Essentially, the laws are also being upheld and the child is getting the support they need. Right. Uh, I also work with K-12 through school districts and helping them to create specialized programs for students with mental health needs. That was something that I did when I was still a district teacher and I go into other districts and kind of give them the formula and the format needed to create that type of program so that students can get understanding mental health support and still be able to access their education and be successful. And then my third category is what we've been talking about today of going into business, corporate setting, and and helping with that understanding of neurodiversity and mental health to ultimately, hopefully, create a valued and engaged workforce.
1: Excellent. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. This obviously keeps you fairly busy, eh?
2: (laughs) It (laughs) does. Three
0: three different categories. So um, is a recognition amongst employers businesses to – the recognition to accept that there is such a thing as neuro- neurodiversity, point number one, and that accommodation should be made, is that becoming more common? Are you finding more people, more employers are open to talking about it now than they used to?
2: I would say if you're hiring me, you're definitely more open to it. And I would say that's a trending – people, are, I think, are hearing more about it. They're either recognizing it in themselves – Um, There's curiosity around it, or maybe there's been enough going on with their employees that they want to understand or have a deeper understanding. So I definitely think there's more acceptance and this idea of wanting to have a better understanding of how they can best support their workforce. I feel like most people who have businesses want their businesses to be successful. And if your business is large enough, you know you have to rely on your workforce. You know that you essentially want to build a workforce that is going to be long-term. They're not going to leave within six months of you hiring them. So I think a lot more people, even if they're maybe not so sure, maybe this is a bunch of hooey, that this is, you know, this new age thing. I think they're at least starting to recognize I've at least got to invest and understand because even if I don't quite understand it yet, my workforce might understand Mm -hmm. it or believe in it. And so I've got to at least explore it. I'm seeing that. But I, I definitely still come across people Um, even within education settings who are not quite believers yet or understand or think that it it exists. So I think you're Mm -hmm. always going to have that though. I think there are always going to be people who are, you know, I never had any of this when I was younger. This, you know, I just had, I did what I needed to do kind of mindset versus Mm -hmm. people who are trying to see this understanding of maybe what people are experiencing or going through. Right. Hmm.
0: But you you mentioned something earlier—the high cost of replacing employees—and that alone should be a huge driver for businesses. Exactly. Uh, and what we're, we're seeing in Canada, I don't know if it's the same in the states, but we, we're seeing, despite um, high unemployment and job losses because of the shutdown, a lot of service industries cannot get staff. You know, when when you drive into town, virtually every coffee shop and drive-through is saying we're hiring, and some of them have got notices saying, "Please be patient; we can't get enough staff." so that's Thank how Indiana desperate States. yeah, same thing. That's how desperate some some sectors are to keep employees. so this can only be good. Back to you, Kathleen. sorry.
1: so Krista, when you get called by a client, what are the first steps you take to advance mental health and neurodiversity in the corporate setting?
2: So one of the first things I like to do is sit down and go what is what is it that you called me for? Like, what is it that you're experiencing or dealing with? Sometimes it's just a high level, hey. We've heard these buzzwords and we want to stay trendy and just what can you give us but sometimes people are specific it's you know we have noticed that our you know after six months it's very typical for people to want to leave uh we've noticed that you know we have this rock star employee are but they come in late and we're not getting as much benefit from them even though they have so much potential you know what can we do so i'm really trying to go in first and get to the root cause i am a believer that any problem has a root cause to it Mm -hmm. and it's trying to get to what is the root cause of what you're dealing with Mm -hmm. and then I come up and we create a solution based on what that root cause is so sometimes I have to go in and observe sometimes the information is presented to me It, it really looks so different from company to company to family to family I mean nothing has ever been the same thing. I mean, maybe some of the same problems. And so some of my solutions can be similar, but it's always trying to come at specifically what the issue is that that company is facing. Because sometimes I have to focus more on mental health. Sometimes I need to focus more on that neurodiversity. Sometimes I have to tie in how neurodiversity and mental health affect each other. But mm-hmm. it really is what are they observing and seeing within their corporate setting? Mm-hmm. And, and what is it that you specifically would like support on?
1: And, and let me jump in here. So taking your example for the employee that's got great potential, but comes in late every day from an employer standpoint, does that mean just accommodating that person
2: or the, what, what? what exactly is the expectation here? That is a really good question. And because one of the things that I I always share too, because that that type of employee comes up frequently, is with ADHD. It's not about accommodating and be like, okay, well you're so they're so great. It's cool if you don't come in on time. That's that's not what I am preaching or what I am pushing with them whatsoever. People who are neurodiverse still need structure. If anything, they thrive off structure. They don't necessarily like it, but they actually thrive off of it. And so that's one of the things that I try and share with the workforce or whoever I am working with at the time like you want to enforce whatever your rules and procedures are this doesn't mean that they get to go away you should still have your rules and procedures if there's any kind of mandate or something that happens if a person comes in late x amount of times or doesn't communicate what's going on in their life that doesn't mean you need to change that policy but maybe how you're communicating it with them, mm-hmm. or maybe how they're okay. communicating with you is what needs to change. And so that's what I'm essentially trying to get to the bottom of. I'm not, I'm not washing away the rules and saying, let's, you know, just laissez faire this and let things go. Structure is important, you know, expectations are important, but maybe it's that communication piece that is the mm-hmm. breakdown that is preventing that highly skilled employee from being as successful as you want them to be.
1: Mm. Okay. Well,
0: that's that's really re- reassuring for employers to to hear that you'll reinforce the structures and just improve the communication, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think having been an employer of, in one business, a lot of people myself, I know that the fear as an employer is if you start relaxing the rules for one person, mm-hmm. the rot sets in, to use that old terminology. And if you're not careful away, your whole discipline structure is efficiency has gone. So, yeah. Oh, that is refreshing. So, Kristen, here's my what I call my burning question for you. We, we've done well over 200 episodes, and most of those are with successful business people, and we ask every successful business person the same burning question. And the question is, in your experience, with working with large numbers of people, and you've worked with people who we'd consider normal and neurodiverse and students and, and guys who want to bring guns to school and all sorts of things, but if you take this huge group of people you've worked with, is there a single characteristic or mindset or or a habit in your mind that sets those who go on to become successful apart from those that remain average? And I don't just mean accumulating wealth. I mean, successful in a broader sense, having a balanced life health. Is there one thing or is it more complicated?
2: Oh, you know, the first thing that came to my mind when you were asking me that question is this concept of resiliency and perseverance. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it is a big thing. And, and I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to get on a soapbox for just a second. Sure, sure, please yeah. do. And I think it's more so because of what I'm seeing in a lot of youth and youth. And when I say youth, I mean even college students, so students mm-hmm. who are going to be entering the workforce. And I think for the last generation or so, I have noticed this trend and it does start with parenting. And I will say this before anyone gets angry with me. I do think it comes from a place of love. I am a parent myself. So I think- Parents are always coming from a place of love. And when your child hurts, you hurt. And you want to stop that mm-hmm. hurt in your child. But what I've noticed in parents is that instead of allowing your child to sit with frustration, to sit with hurt, to sit with having to deal with anything that they didn't like or wasn't, you know, something that made them happy. We've always been, we're trying to swoop in and we're trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. We're trying to swoop in. And you don't, you don't like this teacher at school. I'm going to call up that school and I'm going to get you pulled out of that class. Um, you didn't get an award that I think you should have won. I'm going to call somebody up and I'm going to, we're constantly trying to save our children from having to deal mm-hmm. with these, you know, these prickly feelings, feelings that we all know. We've all mm-hmm. had them at some point in our life, or we all had them when we were children, you know, those feelings of being disappointed, not True. getting picked, not making a team, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And it hurts. It stings. It doesn't feel great. And I think the last couple generations of parents have, you know, what, for whatever reason, those feelings have stuck out very strongly in their mind, and they've worked really hard to try and prevent that for their children having to, to feel that. And I get it. It comes from a place of love. So I'm not pointing mm-hmm. fingers or getting angry with anyone. But what ends up happening is you end up with children who are now young adults, adults who don't have that perseverance, mm-hmm. who don't have mm-hmm. that resiliency. As soon as something becomes uncomfortable or it gets tough, it's just, I'm going to quit. I'm going to wash my hands. I'm not going to deal with it. And sometimes it can even result in long-term consequences of people who um, have a breakup and they don't know how to deal with it. And then it ends up in in a suicidal ideation is is how I'll phrase it. And I think it's because that perseverance and that resiliency hasn't been instilled. And so I think people who go on to achieve great things, people who are successful Mm -hmm. and can push are the people who can sit with those uncomfortable feelings and then pull up the bootstraps and push through it and go, but I'm gonna keep pushing and I'm gonna go on to the next Mm -hmm. thing. This is a failure. That's okay, there was a learning lesson to get out of this. I now know not how to do something and now I'm gonna (laughs) go and do it a different way, but I'm going to keep going. But I think as long as we prevent our children from ever having to deal with those feelings of discomfort, we're going to be taking away their ability to essentially hone or develop those skills And that's what's going Mm -hmm. to prevent them in the future as adults from being able to push through and find that long term success.
0: No, very good. Very good. Thank you for that.
2: Thank you. (laughs) And, you know, we are um,
1: out of time, but oh, my gosh, what a privilege to have had you on the show today. But first, uh, before I let you go, uh, how do people contact you?
2: Absolutely. So if anyone would like to reach out, my website is the easiest way to do that. You can get my social media, my email address, everything there. And that is from www.theneurodiverseteacher.com Put
0: that on. Thank yeah. you for that, Kristen. And for our audio listeners, that will be in the description wherever you listen to this on all the main channels. Thank you. Well, and, thanks so uh, much for having me. You're welcome. Back to Kathleen to round it off.
1: Well, thank you all so very much for tuning into our show again. We so appreciate you. And if anyone is interested in being a guest on our show, please visit us at theyackingshow.com. All you need to do is click on the contacts tab where you will find a short application form. And we look forward to hearing from you. Also, if there's any topics that are of interest to you, please let us know in the comments as we have access to a great number of wonderful experts on this show. So until next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Goodbye.